We'll be reading through Philippians 3 and Hebrews 12. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 17. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And from Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is God's word. Please remain standing for the next song in the offering. So one of the new things for me in 2012 are reading glasses. So please don't, don't laugh. Why do you laugh? That's not, amen, yeah. First it's the hair and then it's the eyes. I don't want to know what's next. Don't even tell me, all right? Just let me be blissfully ignorant for some time. Uh, so I apologize if I have to go back and forth. It's either that or I have to take the, the pulpit and push it down another two feet. I think that would be a little more difficult. So um, We're in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to continue working through uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippians. And if you see, I pulled back a little bit. There's so much here. Um, the sermon last week I enjoyed so much, Brother Kurt. Thank you for preaching that. Uh, th- these are verses that you can pull so much from because they're so deep and they're so rich. Uh, what, what we do see here is a theme that permeates all of sacred scripture, certainly all of Paul's writings, and that is where he calls us to press on. And he says, you are to live a life in light of the salvation you already have in Christ. And he said, strive for it, push for it, uh, work for it, not to get it because you already have it, but as we'll see, to become the person that you have been destined to be all along. And in this passage today, um, it's... It's one thing to to be told that. The Apostle Paul told us that. Kurt preached that to us last week. We hear this. What do we do with it? How do we take this call to press on and actually press on? I mean, what does that look like? Does Paul tell us anything? And and where do we get the motivation for that? We'll find that here in these particular verses. We're going to look at three things this morning. One, pressing on in grace. Pressing on in grace. Striving in grace. Straining in grace. Number two, thinking in grace. And number three, walking in grace. Pressing on in grace, thinking in grace, walking in grace. Number one, pressing on in grace. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he writes, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of, for the, prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's from the ESV. It's hard when you've memorized verses in other translations because you start to read it and then throw your own uh, passage in there. Um, I want you to notice something right off the bat. Paul says, I haven't obtained this unity with Christ yet. I don't have it yet. He talks about it. He calls us to He says, but I don't have it yet. He doesn't have the blessings of the resurrection yet. He doesn't have full righteousness yet. He doesn't have the full knowledge and wisdom of that intimate, personal, physical relationship with Jesus Christ yet. And so he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect. And in verse 13, better in the NIV, he writes, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. And so there's this 
what theologians call this already not yet paradox that we have in the faith of who we are right now if you're saved by grace in Christ and who you're not yet right now saved by grace in Christ. And it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox and it's subtle. And so we want to try to grab onto it and hold onto it without flopping to one side or the other. The Apostle Paul realizes with great clarity that he still is missing the mark. That his character is not what it's supposed to be yet. That his relationship and knowledge of who God is to him is not complete yet. And so he says, with great passion and great zeal, in three verses, verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own. Verse 13, I strain forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. In other words, my whole life, I'm going to pursue this. This unity with Christ, this righteousness that he's imparted to me, this life of the resurrection, I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to, with all of who I am, all of my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, I'm running after this. He makes it clear that he's not there, but he wants it. Now, if you were to take verses 12, 13, and 14, and you didn't have the rest of the Bible to bracket those verses, you'd come away thinking that that Christianity... amongst other things, was fundamentally a works-based faith, right? I mean, this sounds like you got to press on, you got to strain, you got to press on. In other words, you want to know God? Then you better pray really hard, and you better read your Bible, and you better tithe, and you better serve, and you better give your, you better do all that, because otherwise you won't know Him. Paul says you got to do that, right? If you want to be righteous, then you must be the most ethical, moral person. You must live that life to be righteous on your own, and don't slip up not even once. If you want the resurrection life, you want heaven, eternal peace, life with God, then you must be the best mother, the best father, the best sibling, the best employee, the best church member, the best friend, right? And that's what it sounds like if you were to just take these three verses, that it's based upon your effort whether or not you'll have any of these things, the knowledge of God, the righteousness, and eternal life that he offers. It's passages like these, without the rest of the Bible holding it in firm context, that lead to works-based cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and like Mormons and like denominations within Christianity that are overemphasized on work, work, work to get there. But by God's grace, we have the entire Bible to give us context. In fact, we have context within this passage. Look at verse 12. God says, God, Paul says, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm going to press on to possess that which I already possess. I'm going to press on to become that which, in the eyes of God, I already am. Already, not yet. Because we know that Paul, on the road to Damascus, when he came to a saving grace in Christ, and Christ revealed himself to him, we know that at that moment, Paul turned. He became a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom. Saved by God's grace, indwelling the Holy Spirit. We know that. And yet Paul says, at the same time, I must take this knowledge of who I am in Christ, and I must, what? I must work it in. I must press it in. I must tell myself and teach myself and remind myself of who I really am in Christ right now. Because I'm not there yet. He says, I'm going to strain for it. I'm going I'm I'm to push on for that. This gift that he already has. You see, in the eyes of God, Paul is already perfect because God sees Paul through the blood of Christ. Already perfect, already holy, already righteous. And then Paul sees himself and he says, what are you kidding me? I know who I am. I know the sin that still dwells within me. And so I'm going to take this realized spiritual state in Christ and I'm going to work toward that. I'm going to press toward that. Not to earn it because I already have it but to become the person that God created me to be, holy and pure and beautiful and radiant in his sight. And so he uses words like strive, strain, which literally means to stretch. Paul's going to stretch himself. I know you're thinking as I was superheroes, right? He's going to stretch himself, Mr. Stretch. He's going to press on. He's going to, all of his life, he's going to move in that direction to realize who he already is in Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, These two are tied together beautifully. Paul says, we pray that you, us, may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Why? Why does he pray this? 
Why does he pray that we'll live a life worthy of the Lord? Why does he pray that we'll bear fruit? He gives us the answer. He says, because of this. Now listen closely. Because the Father has, past tense, qualified you already to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He has, past tense, rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. He has, brought, he has past tense, redeemed you and forgiven you of your sins. Already, all these things, if you know Christ, are true in you, who you really are. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ right now. Right now. And then again in chapter 2, he says, Because of this great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Listen. And he raised us up, past tense, with Christ, and has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You're saying, what is this? I'm not seated in heaven right now. I'm here listening to you. Right? All the blessings of heaven, the inheritance already, yes, yes, yes. Fully materialized yet? No. But real. Extremely real. In that, for all who have repented and believed, for all those who know Christ, you're already qualified. You're already justified. You're your card, your driver's license doesn't say California or United States. It says citizen of heaven. It says son or daughter of the king already. It says righteous already. It says beautiful already. Already. Even though we say, I don't see that. Paul recognized that. And so he says, I don't see it clearly yet either. So I've got to press on and strain and strive for that which I already have. And make it real. Push it in. Push it in. This present possession, and more importantly, the knowledge of this present possession, of who you are in Christ, changes everything for the believer. If you know this, I mean, really know it, and it becomes part of who you are, your identity, your purpose in life, you'll live life differently. You'll live life like a son or daughter of a king. You'll move through life with purpose and direction, knowing that the gospel of grace saved you and you want to share that with others as well. When we take these verses, 12, 13, and 14, and we couple them with Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians 1 and 2, we see that they come together and with, with those together, there's great power. Because Paul says, press on for what you already have. Strain toward what you already know. Work to become who you already are in Christ. He says, make it real. Make it real. And so, what we're not doing is we're not straining, we're not working, we're not pressing on to get that which we do not have, but we want, which is works-based religion. We're pressing on, we're straining for, toward that which we already have in Christ. Theologian Gordon D. Fee referred to this in-between, already-not-yet state as the radical middle. And hence, I use this as my title. It's so good. I love that. Where are we? We're in the radical middle. What is that? Listen. He writes this. Paul theologizes, I love that, theo, I can't say it. Paul teaches, how about that, about the Christian life in a way that makes him neither a triumphalist or a defeatist, but a realist. Now listen to this. To recapture the Pauline experience and understanding is the key to our finding our way into the radical middle, where we expect neither too much nor too little. Here we will know life and vitality, attractive life and vitality, in our personal lives and in the community of faith. Here we will constantly have the veil removed so that we might behold God's glory in the face of Christ. So that we are constantly being renewed into his likeness. Here in the radical middle, we will regularly expect and see both the working of miracles and the fellowship of his suffering without sensing frustration in either direction. I love that. I read that. I'm like, that's it. The fellowship of his sufferings, the miracles taking place, and not being frustrated in either direction. Why? Because you have it already and not yet. The radical middle. It's knowing that on the one hand, if you know Christ, you are already beautiful. You're already radiant. You're already holy. You're already perfect in Christ. You're already a citizen of the kingdom of God. And at the same time, 
Not yet. And hence, we are to radically press on toward that goal to win that prize, to know Christ. That tension, the tension that we're supposed to keep, the already not yet, through our lives, will move us to places where we will experience the joys and we'll go through the sufferings and we won't get frustrated because this is life on this side until he comes again in glory, until he calls you home. And so Paul says, I press on to what? To make it my own. To make what is already true my own. I press on to make it real to me. Because fundamentally, every time we sin, every time we deviate toward an idol, we have forgotten who we are already in Christ, right? I mean, you're turned away. Somehow you have to. You have to say, I must not be holy. I must not be satisfied. I must not be perfect in Christ. I must not be. Or I wouldn't feel like this. That tension. Paul says, I'm going to possess it. And it will change the way you live if you do. I had mentioned in Sunday school this morning that in the time that Paul was writing, in the Jewish culture, and very much in, in many places in the world today, when a man and a woman were engaged to be married, they were betrothed or betrothed. I can say that, right, like that. You have to say that word with some type of an accent because it just doesn't sound right. And they go, betrothed. It doesn't sound good. Betrothed sounds better, right? It, it sounds much better than engaged. I think that we should start saying, use, let's use that term as a church. I am betrothed to my beloved, right? Now say, what does that mean? It did mean something a little different in that the man and woman that were betrothed to each other were, were already in a contractual agreement, From a legal standpoint, from a religious standpoint, they were already considered husband and wife. In fact, in the Hebrew, both in 2 Samuel 3 and Deuteronomy 22, the word betrothed is used to denote the the woman as a wife already before her wedding date. The only thing they did not know was cohabitation and consummation of the marriage. But they were considered husband and wife. And wife. In fact, so much so that rabbinical law for centuries declared that if two people who were betrothed to each other decided to end the engagement, they'd have to go through legal divorce proceedings like they would if they were married. So they were married, but not yet. Right? They, they had this promise of relationship and a sense of the relationship, but it wasn't consummated. It wasn't complete. They weren't one husband and wife yet. And this... This emulates the radical middle that we're called to in Christ as well. For the believer in Christ who's been saved by grace, but is yet to be brought into the presence of Christ. You're betrothed, right? You're engaged. You're the bride of Christ. You're engaged to your husband who is Jesus Christ. And what's he going to do? He's going to come back again in glory and what? He's going to get his bride. He's going to take us. And and we're going to have the marriage and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this radical middle is that place, just like the husband and wife that are engaged to be married during that time period. I mean, think about, even today, we don't have to go back. Even today, some of the young couples that have been married, that I've had a chance to marry in the last couple of years in this church, they, during their time of engagement, it was, a, it was a time of wonderful growth in one another. They, they lived during that time to honor one another and to respect one another and to, to know the other person better and to prepare themselves for marriage. And they were certainly faithful during that time, which they ought to have been, right? All those things that we see in the time of engagement between a godly husband and a godly wife-to-be, we are called to be in Christ right now. We are to live lives that bring honor and glory to our groom. We are not to, to, to go out and cheat on him and commit adultery, idolatry. We're supposed to live in such a way where we look forward to that time when he comes again. And that we, like the husband and the wife, eager for the wedding day. Eager for him to come and say, come and be my bride. This this already not yet guarantee that we have, because it is guaranteed. I mean, Christ is going to come again. And if you know him, then you will belong to him forever. And then you will know him in person It's during this already not yet radical middle where we are declared holy but still struggle with sin. Where we know we are united with Christ but we still long to be in his presence. Some of these songs are so hard to sing, at least for me, because we're singing of a present reality that hasn't been grasped yet. You know, when I sing about the presence of Christ, I I long for that. Do you... Do you say, yeah, I have him now, I know that, but I want him more. I want to know him more. I want to see him, I want to touch him. I want him to hold me. I want to, I want to walk with him and I want to talk with him. 
Paul says, press to that end. Live to that end. Work to that end. Not to earn it because you already have it if you're in him. But to make it real to you now. Now. And forever time he gives you. Because when he comes again, then we will be, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, changed in a flash. In the twinkling of an eye into the people you were destined to be. What a moment that'll be. What a moment that'll be. So, the question then becomes, okay, we're called to press on in grace, to live out in this radical middle of the already not yet. But how? I mean, you tell me, I don't know how. I go to work on Monday and I, it's hard and I'm discouraged and I hate my job and I'm struggling with my coworkers. You know, I go home and, and the kids aren't behaving themselves and there's difficulties in the marriage and I'm struggling with my moral. How do I do this? How do I live in the radical middle without becoming anxious or complacent, without becoming really stressed out or becoming just downright lazy. How do I do that? Paul gives us a clue. Second point, thinking in grace, Philippians 3, 15, he writes, let those of us who are mature think this way. And so Paul does something very interesting here. He makes a distinction in the church in Philippi between the mature and the immature. And he does it in a very careful, loving way, and I'll get to that in a minute. But look what he does here. He says, let those of us who are mature do what? Think. Let us think. Let us reason. The word he uses for mature here, it's the same word in verse 12, you can look back, that is used for perfect. And the word that you know, because I've talked about it before, it's teleos. And it's a great word, and it means a ton of stuff in different contexts. But here it means to be complete, to be whole. To be complete in labor, in growth, in mental prowess, in, in a moral character. And so what Paul is not saying is he's saying, I'm not perfect. He's already stated categorically, I've, I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm still missing the mark. I'm not perfect. So he's not saying that. What is he saying? He's saying this. This is solid food that I'm giving you. This is real meat. This isn't milk, as he talked about to the Corinthians. Says, this is food that I want you to chew on. And I want you to meditate on. And I want you to think about. Because if you get the concept of the radical middle, of the already not yet, you'll live differently. Just like the husband and wife engaged to be married will live differently in anticipation of their wedding day. In fact, he's even more direct with the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, a bit brutal, chapter 14, verse 20, he says, Brothers, stop thinking like children. He says, In regards to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, what? Be adults. Think like adults. Meditate on this properly. Comprehend this properly. Why does he say that? Here's why. The immature believer will take the statements made by Paul. Paul says, you're already saved. You're already beautiful. You're already glorious. Now, press on toward the goal to win the prize. What? They'll take that and they'll go, hmm, that doesn't make sense to me. They, they will hear the apostle Paul says, it's not by you adhering to the works of law that will save you. It's by the work of Christ that will save you. And you say, amen, I got that. That's grace. And he says, now, go live according to the law. And you say, wait a minute. Which one is it? And the immature believer will take one or the other, but won't take both. They'll flop to one side or the other. They'll become legalistic, which we see in churches today, or they'll become licentious and say, it doesn't really matter how we live. It's all by grace anyway. And we will move in one of those two directions, working ferociously in order to be saved or sitting back and foolishly saying, I don't need to do anything. No responsibility on me. God's taking care of it through the blood of Christ. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter how I live. It's all good. Both those are perversions of the gospel. And in any church where the gospel is not preached fully, in any place where the gospel of grace is not taught and lived out fully, you will have movement in one direction, legalism, or the other, licentiousness, without failure. How come? A works-based salvation, life, or a cheap grace salvation, life. Why? If I stand up here week after week, and I tell you again and again, if you know Christ, you're beautiful. If you know Christ, you're saved. If you know Christ, you're righteous. You're white as snow. You're glorious in his sight. You're already a son. You're, if I, that's all I tell you. Week after week, and I don't remind you that you're a sinner who's been saved by grace and that you're still a sinner and you still need to repent and you still need to confess and you still need to press on. If I overemphasize who you are without continuously reminding us of the grace that came through the cross and the sacrifice made by Christ, what will happen? We'll become complacent. 
In fact, we'll become downright lazy. Because say, what? Jesus did it all. I don't have to do it. It's by grace alone, Pastor. You said it with your own lips. And we pervert that. We won't run. In fact, we won't walk. We won't even jog. We'll just sit. And we'll just hang out. And we'll listen. And we'll watch. And we'll just move through life without any pressing or striving or running. Because when we think like children, we foolishly conclude that if God already did all the work, then there's no work for us to do. There's nothing for us to do. So we do nothing, right? I mean, if I said to my kids, listen, don't worry about it. There's no work for you to do. I've taken care of it. They go, great, Dad, thank you. Can we go do this, right? No need to strive or press on. No need to mortify sin. No need to pursue holiness. No need to serve others. No need to share the gospel. No need for transformation of character. And I'm afraid this immature approach has made its way into the church today. I mean, we have fallen in that direction. I think more than the other side, which we'll talk about momentarily, that in the church today, many professing Christians, they'll come on a Sunday, and and this is the degree to which they exercise the means of grace. And this is a means of grace. But from Sunday to Sunday, they will never, ever open their Bible on their own. They'll never read scripture on their own. They'll never study it on their own. They'll never meditate on it on their own. How many Christians come to a corporate gathering but never filter down to a small group? Never make it into a discipleship? Never make it down to three, four, five people that know you and you know really well and there's intimate relationship? How many Sunday churchgoers never spend quality time praying? I mean, there's, the week's too busy. I pray a little bit before Sunday and a little bit, but there's no prayer, no real prayer, no use of their gifts and talents. Serving in the community of the church, no outreach, no sharing of the gospel. How many Sunday to Sunday without identifying sin and confessing sin and turning from sin? Thinking, you know what? It's covered by grace. The consequences may not be good, but I'm covered by grace. This approach is an immature approach, which Paul is not teaching. He's saying, don't do this. I've had students and athletes over the years that were, had God-given talent. You know, some of those kids that come into your classroom and, and they just, they get everything. They get everything. They don't need to study. They don't need to take notes. These are the people we don't like, right? They don't study. They don't take notes. And they always get A's. That person early on told how smart they are, how wise they are. You tell, that, you tell someone that long enough, early enough, and what's going to happen? They become lazy. They become complacent. And they stop working. They stop pressing into themselves what they're supposed to be. I've seen it even more so in athletes. As a coach over the years, I've seen athletes who, and there's always a kid or two that just stands out. I mean, they're exceptional in everything. Parents and coaches, oh, he's so good, he's so good, she's so good, she's so great, early on. And they think, well, I am, right? They're terrible to coach, by the way, because what? They know everything. You don't need it. They know everything. What can you teach me? I had a kid this year. He ended up being an all-star running back, set a league record for most yards running a single season in our league. Amazing. At the beginning of the season, he says, Coach, he says, we got everything taken care of. We just need you to help us out with the details. I said, well, thank you for letting me know that. Because I have, obviously I have nothing to teach you. Right? He had already arrived. There was a young man I played baseball with. Uh, he was a prodigy at an early age. Extraordinary. Great arm, great mitt, great stick. I mean, incredible kid. Even his name. His name was Sean Lightning. I mean, that's just... I'm serious. That's not even fair, right? I mean, really? He's going to be that good and you give him that name? So I played with him in Little League. And then I ended up playing against him again in high school. And he was just an average Joe Schmo. I mean, he was, he was good, but he was average like the rest of us. What had happened? It's not that he lost his talent, but I know somewhere along the way he thought, I'm, I've already arrived, and he didn't work, and he didn't push. And then he ends up into high school, and he's no longer a standout. Not that he couldn't have been. He could have been, but he didn't press on. He didn't strive for it. He got lazy. He got complacent. Sounds familiar, right? The other perversion from the radical middle is going the other direction. Now listen, there are a few of you in here, and I won't say any names, but you know who you are, who struggle with this. You struggle with the gospel being free. You struggle with grace being grace. And you still think somehow, you've got to do something. The grace is good and you'll take it. There's got to be something else you can do. There must be something else you have to do. 
So you, my worker bees, are the kind that will take the grace and become religious. You will work to be saved. And you know, a church that does that quickly becomes a church full of Marthas and not Marys. Always busy, 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 busy. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the complacent church. The complacent church shows up once a week and they go, what do you got to say? Very nice. And they leave and you never see anybody. The, the legalistic church, the religious church, it's just doing everything all the time. I mean, you've got 100 Bible studies and 12 outreach programs and all these things taking place and everybody's doing all this. And nobody's stopping to anoint the Lord with holy oil. And before you point fingers, all of us lean one way or the other. Depending upon your disposition, your upbringing, all of us lean toward that side of moralism and legalism or licentiousness and cheap grace. When we lean toward the cheap grace side, we come complacent. And more often than not, in a church setting, we just complain about what's not getting done. You know, this should really be done. Do you want to do it? No. I really think it'd be good if the church did this. Do you want to do it? No, I don't want to do it. We just complain about it, right? And then the other struggle with the free grace is that we press on toward a goal to win a price that we believe Christ hasn't secured for us already, which is equally tragic. They look different but they're equally tragic, and they both fail. So what does Paul say? He says, don't be like a child. And he's saying, I love you. Don't be like a child. Be like a mature adult and think. In fact, the word in the Greek, phroneo, it means, it means to exercise your mind, to work your mind out. Take these truths. Take this already not yet paradox and, and struggle with it. The struggle's good. Meditate on it. Press it in. Toss it around. Figure it out. It's not going to be for me just telling you, by the way. You can't just even go, already, not yet, paradox, I have, Pastor Keith preached it. That's not it. I'm introducing it to you. But you've got to take it and you've got to push it in. You've got to move it around and understand it. The bottom line is this. The scriptures teach this from Genesis to Revelation. You can't save yourself. Worker bees, you can't work hard enough and long enough and good enough to be saved by God's grace. That's why we need God's grace, okay? And we can put a period on that. The only way someone will be saved, the only way someone will be righteous, as Paul talks about, the only way someone will enjoy the sweet fellowship of Jesus, which he says everybody wants, fundamentally, the only way we will enjoy the resurrection of the dead is if it's by God's grace through Christ alone, period. Now, that in and of itself takes the whole worker bee religious philosophy and it destroys it. It tears it apart. So he says, think about that. Why are you working so hard? Are you striving and pressing on to become the person you already are in Christ? Or are you striving and pressing on to become something that you don't think you already are to earn it? He's saying, think about it. Fundamentally saying, it's just dumb. Stop. For the complacent, he says this. Contemplate the infinite sacrifice and the magnitude of the gift made. That Christ made. The sacrifice made and the gift. Because if you do, when you stop and you contemplate the cross and the suffering and the hell, you realize that you cannot be complacent with this gift. That you must press on. That you must strain and strive to become the person that God has called you to be. Paul got it. Paul lived in the radical middle And the radical middle is that place where the gospel of grace says this. Weary soul, find rest in Christ and rest. And from that rest, you will work. It's the exact opposite, right? The culture says work or rest. Which one? When I go on vacation, I'm not working. When I'm working, I'm certainly not on vacation. Because Monday morning does not feel like vacation, right? It's one or the other. The gospel comes along and says, no, The gospel says, no rest in Christ. Find the rest in Christ. And then from that rest, from that identity of who you are and who you become, he says, work. Press on. Because you already have it. Become the person that God has destined you to be before the foundations of the world, according to Paul in Ephesians. Mm. Our service to God will be the product of being saved, not to be saved. It's striving to become someone you already are. It's pursuing that which you already possess. One commentator put it like this. The true Christian then, who feels that heaven is to be his home, and who believes that Christ means to bestow it upon him, will make the most strenuous efforts to obtain it. 
The prize is so beautiful and glorious that he will exert every power of body and soul that it may be his. The belief, therefore, that God means to save us is one of the highest incentives to work in the cause of our faith. Did you hear that? This belief that God means to save us is one of the highest incentives to work in the cause of our faith. Now, Paul is so careful here not to create division in the church. The teaching is so beautifully nuanced. I want to show you this really quickly. Look at verse 15 again. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Think what way? Already not yet. The radical middle. Think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, honestly, but don't raise your hands. But honestly, don't raise your hands. When I was talking to you about people who live according to cheap grace and people who are worker bees, how many of you are going, mm-hmm, oh, I know who he's talking about now. How many of you are thinking, yeah, I hope so-and-so is here to listen to that. I hope she's here because she needs a word from God, right? You're saying, oh, this, this person's got to hear this. How many of you did that? Don't raise your hand. Remember I told you not to raise your hand? I did, Pastor. I know exactly who you were talking about. It wasn't me. It's never us. Paul is so good here. He says, listen, I don't want you to take this and use it as a stick. Are there mature and immature believers in the church? Of course. Were there in Philippi? Of course. Or he wouldn't have made that distinction. There were some who were further along in their faith. Greater wisdom, greater knowledge, greater understanding of God. Closer proximity to the creator. And there were others who were not. For probably a variety of reasons. Maybe less opportunity to know. Maybe less opportunity to to grow in the faith. Maybe they were just being stubborn and not growing. So he makes this distinction. But at the same time he says, do not let it divide you. Don't let this cause disunity in the church. Don't have anger. Don't have judgment. Don't have condemnation toward those who are more or less mature. The more mature say, why aren't you more mature? Why don't you understand this? This is simple Christianity. This is simple theology. The immature say, why are you so zealous? Why are you so fanatical? Why are you so extreme? Paul says, don't do that. He says, listen. In fact, verse 16, he says, let us hold true to what we have attained. And this verse in the NIV, actually, this verse is mistranslated a lot. It means, listen, he's saying to the church, what you know and agree upon already, walk in harmony. On those things that you believe that Christ came, yes. You believe that he lived a perfect life, yes. You believe that he died and rose, yes. Hold on to these things and walk in harmony on these things that we agree upon. And then he says, on those things that we don't agree upon, what does he say? If they are children of God, God will reveal it to them. It doesn't say don't teach it, because it says teach with gentleness and love and mildness. But if they don't get it, don't beat them on the head. Don't take your ESV study Bible, which is a very heavy Bible, and start hitting them. He says don't do that. Teach with mildness and gentleness. And then pray that God will show them, because it says here that he will. It says that God will show them if they don't get it, if they know Christ. Before we get to our last point, we don't do that well, saints. We don't do that well. We're always judging and we're always condemning based upon where someone is or is not in the faith. Why isn't so-and-so serving like that? Why aren't they here? Hmm? Hmm? We look down and we look up with condemnation and judgment. And I'm not saying don't be your brother's keeper. Go to people. Love people. Teach people. Grow people. Nurture them. We're called to do that. But don't slip that judgment and condemnation in the back of your head as you do it. So we're called to press on. In grace, we're called to think in grace. And there's one more piece here that Paul says, walk in grace. And in verse 17, he kind of gives us, he wraps it up here. If you have the NIV, then you go, wait, this is the beginning of a new paragraph. There were no paragraphs in the extent manuscripts, by the way. So those paragraphs are placed there by the translators. Okay? I think this actually does much better with 16. Verse 17, brothers, he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Quite simply, Paul's saying, take what you know to be true cognitively, what you're thinking about, what you're meditating on, and now put in action. Do it. Live out that which you are trying to understand. 
And he says, join in imitating me. Literally in the Greek, it's mimic me. Think as I think. Not as a child, but as an adult. Do as I do. Not as someone who speaks the truth, but lives the truth out. Paul fundamentally was a practitioner more than he was a philosopher or theologian. What do I mean by that? Paul practiced what he preached. He lived it out. I mean, he did. He proclaimed the gospel. And he taught great details about our faith to the churches throughout um, the Roman Empire. But he lived out what he taught and preached as well. He is a, Paul is an extraordinary model. And if you don't believe me, then just listen to this from 2 Corinthians 11. Paul's writing this about his straining for Jesus. And then ask yourself, am I straining like this? Paul says, I've worked much harder. He's not gloating, by the way. He, is, he says multiple times that all glory is given to God. But he writes, I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Listen to the straining. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've, I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have, been, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's pressing on. I read that and I think, I don't know what it means to strive. This is striving. This is pressing on to become the person that Paul already knew he was. Now, we, we read that and we go, well, that's the Apostle Paul. That's not me. No, that's the believer in Christ. We say, Paul was extraordinary. He had a, an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. No, he was a disciple of Christ that got it. He lived in the radical middle. He understood the already not yet and he pressed on to be the person that he already was in Christ. And then he says, I love this, don't just mimic me. In verse 17 he says, keep your eyes, literally that means to mark, on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And what he's saying is, don't just model me, but there are people in your midst. There are brothers and sisters in your church that are walking like this. So what does he do? He says, Watch them. Model them. That's not difficult, saints. There are men and women in this church right now that are further along in the faith than you, that are more mature in the faith than you. Are you watching them? Are you spending time? Do you say, hey, can, can I come over to your house and watch you? You say, that's weird. It's not. Can I, at church, can I have lunch? Can I spend time with you at church? Can I spend time with you? I'm, I'm, I want to watch you. I want to mark you. Why? The word here literally means to mark with the intention of mimicking, of becoming like. For those of you who had kids, I mean, there were times, not so much anymore, especially my older boys, but Joshy even now, they're constantly, put on my shoes, they'll put on my hats, they'll do what you do, they mimic, why? Because they want to be like you. Now that can be good or bad, right? For the believer though, to mimic the more mature, one commentator said this, and it really struck me. He said that our faith will take its form and complexion from those with whom we associate. And then he said, and the most holy of God's children will be those who associate with the most holy companions. Who do you associate with? Who are you modeling? Who are you looking to, to understand this radical middle, this already not yet? Who? I mean, there, have, there should be people. It can be a short list, but there should be people on your list. Two, three, four people say, oh, I've marked so-and-so. They don't even know it, but I marked them. And I'm watching them. And I watch how they pray, and I watch how they study, and I watch how they serve. You say, well, who do I watch? There are people here. But there's one to watch first and foremost, and of course, that's Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ is the ultimate one to watch, right? He's the ultimate command companion. He is the most holy of holy. And so Christ not only presents us with the perfect model, but he also presents us with the motivation to model him. He is a man who lived 
Now listen, he lived at perfect rest and yet worked and pressed on for the salvation of mankind. He was at perfect rest in his father and yet worked in that radical middle. There's a parallel passage, and I'm going to close on this, in Hebrews 12, that parallels Philippians 12 through 17. But not only does it parallel it in its call to press on, it gives us the, the radical motivation to live in the radical middle. Listen. The author of Hebrews writes this, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run, press on, strain ahead with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, so that you'll keep pressing on. So that you'll keep running. The calling's the same. Throw off all the sin that entangles and start running. Saints, there are many of us who are not running. Some of us aren't even walking. A lot of us are just sitting. Paul says, Run. Run. For the sake of God, run. You say, I, I, I try. I run for a day and then I fall. And then I don't want to get up for a month. The author of Hebrews and Paul says the same. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Paul says, set your mark on these people. I tell you, set your mark on Jesus. It's the same word. Fix your eyes. See Christ. Every moment of every day. Because if there was someone who lived in the radical middle, it was Jesus. He lived it perfectly. Between his incarnation, when he became a man, and from his resurrection of the dead, he was in the radical middle the entire time. And he lived, he lived a holy life, but in the midst of great persecution and great torment and great suffering. And the only reason... You say, well, how does that give me motivation? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do you see what his prize was? We're told to press on toward the goal to win the prize who is Christ. Do you see what his prize was? It's you. It's me. It's us. We are the joy that was set before him. And so Christ goes through the unthinkable for you. To make you his own. To make you the person that you most desire to be. Holy Righteous, beautiful, and glorious. The author says, Consider him who endured the cross, who endured the scorning, who endured the opposition of sinful men, who endured hell. You've heard that phrase, someone went to hell and back. Christ literally did. And he did it for you. The joy set before him to have you. He did it so that you can know him and he can know you. Not in faith only, but in sight one day. He did it so that you will one day not say, I know I'm righteous in the eyes of God, but I'm still a sinner. So that you will one day say, I am holy as he is holy. What a day. He did it so that you will have all the blessings of the resurrection life. All the things that you long for now. The peace that seems fleeting. The joy that seems to go in and out, day in and day out. The love that you long for most, to truly be wanted. Truly wanted. Not needed, but wanted. For the simple purpose of wanting you. Christ says, I gave it all up, including my Father, so that you can have all that with me. So that we can have this together for all eternity. And when you realize that, saints, when you realize what you already have in Christ and what he did to give it to you, the extreme sacrifice that was made, I'm telling you, you cannot not double negative forgive me. You cannot not press on. You will press on. You'll enter into the radical middle. You realize that you're betrothed to a king. That your groom's coming again for you. And your days will change. If we're missing it, if we're in the realm of legalism or licentiousness, works-based or cheap grace, then Paul's calling you back to the cross this morning. He's saying, my beloved, 
See Christ clearly. See who you are in Christ clearly already. And then in light of the sacrifice and in light of who you are, press on. Run. Run. Kurt last week talked about your plans for 2012. Does it include running? Does it include straining? Does it include striving? Does it include pressing on toward that goal to win what you already have and who you already are in Christ Jesus? I pray so. Pray so. Whatever your, whatever your New Year's resolutions were, put that up there. Put it at the top. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's a good one. That's on mine this year. I pray it's on yours as well. Let's pray. Father, this radical middle is hard to understand. I'm still grappling with it. But we know it's true. We know in the gospel of grace, Lord, that through the sacrifice and work of your son, we're already saved. That you already find us beautiful and radiant and holy and pure. And yet at the same time, we realize, like the Apostle Paul, that we still fall woefully short. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself as well that this would not create anxiety or complacency in our lives. That we would not become stressed out worker bees trying desperately to earn our way into your good grace because we already have it. And because we already have it, we wouldn't become complacent and lazy thinking, well, I have nothing to do, no responsibilities, no expectation. Instead, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for your church here, for your church throughout the world, that we would this day in 2012 realize the radical middle, the gospel of grace that you call us to live out. What a blessing to see a gathering of people who are pressing on toward the goal together. That we would, as a community of believers, strain ahead for that which we already are in Christ. To realize, to push it in deep. To become those people. This is your desire for us individually. This is certainly your desire for us collectively. And I pray that your will would be done here at Camden and every church throughout the world that knows Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen.